0: The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Matthew, glory to you, Lord Christ. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle, and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. The Gospel of our Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Please be seated. Today's Gospel reading is a personal invitation to us. It's an invitation to experience our heavenly father's compassion and his care for us his weary people at his heart is verse 28 come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest but with this invitation we might ask well what kind of rest is Jesus planning to give us what kind of rest is Jesus offering us And I say this because we have a lot of different ideas about what rest looks like in our world today. In our convenience-obsessed culture, so often we think of rest as the absence of work. Maybe when you picture rest, we think of uh, fishing off of a dock, or reading an old book in a hammock, or taking a leisurely walk through nature. Maybe people who think more along my lines are thinking about the nap they're gonna take after service, followed by the six episodes of Star Trek they'll binge watch on Netflix. Now, there's something to be said for all of these, and yes, there's a restful quality to them, though perhaps distinguishable in quality, Um, but what kind of rest is Jesus offering us today in verse 28? Is he offering us three weeks of vacation, sleep, leisure, Netflix? What I think is so profound about this passage, and it's something that is so easy to miss, is that the the rest that our Lord is promising us today is the gospel. The promise of rest that our Lord gives us today is the gospel. And we know this because verse 29 promises us that this is a rest for your souls. It is a rest for our souls. In other words, it's the assurance and confidence of peace with God through Jesus Christ. It's a Hebrews chapter three and four kind of rest, a rest that's so intimately tied up with the history of our salvation and God's activity in his redemption of the world. It's a rest that undoes our felt need to work hard and earn it with God, and instead it frees us to receive the gift of grace that Jesus so eagerly gives us. It's a freedom to come to accept an invitation. Jesus Christ alone can satisfy the deepest spiritual restlessness of the human soul, and we need only take him up on this invitation. What we see in our passage today are three things required for us to say yes to accept Jesus' invitation. And those three are humility before God, revelation from God, and surrender to God. Humility, revelation, and surrender. And so even today, maybe we come here and we are restless and weary from the changes and chances of this fleeting world. My prayer is that we would take up Christ's invitation to come and find rest. Rest in his gospel and rest with assuredness. Come all who are weary, find your rest in Jesus. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father... I give you thanks for our gospel today. I give you thanks for your promise of rest. I give you thanks that we can come to you and find peace in your gospel. I pray, Lord, that this peace which passes all understandings would be with us now, Lord, more and more. Come Holy Spirit. And I pray you will transform us more and more into the image and likeness of your Son through the gospel. Amen. Now, the first thing we see in our passage today that's required for us to find true rest for our souls, to find rest and peace in the gospel, is humility. And I see this in verses 25 and 26. Our Lord says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding, and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Now, what are these things that our Lord is, is praying about in, our, in his very public prayer here? Well, Jesus has been sharing these things to the crowds in Matthew's, Matthew 10 and, uh, and 11. These things are the characteristics of his mission and the essentials of the gospel. So we might well say that his prayer could be paraphrased, Thank you, Father, for you have hidden the gospel from the wise and the understanding. Now, if that leaves you going, wait, what? Or going, what's the deal with that? Then you're probably tracking with Jesus' first audience. Because this would have struck them just as strange. What does Jesus mean by the wise and understanding? And why does Jesus thank his father that he's hidden the gospel from them? Well, let me confess, that this is one of the things I just I love about Jesus. And maybe I love it especially because I'm Canadian. But I love that Jesus isn't afraid to get real sarcastic, you know? For Canadians, I think sarcasm is something of our love language. It's just in our daily, you know, we're inundated with it. Um, But Jesus is taking a sarcastic swipe here at the Pharisees, and we can tell that from the context, we can tell that from the chapters that follow. He's taking a sarcastic swipe at the Pharisees, and why is he doing that? Well, in the first century, it's understood that if anyone is wise and understanding, it was the Pharisees. They were the devoted religious elite, They were the prominent community leaders. They were well-respected, well-educated, and boy, were they pious. They were serious about keeping all the commandments of God to the letter and making sure others did the same. Yet while their lives reflected a vigorous observance of God's law, their hearts were prideful and hypocritical. And that's why in Matthew 23, Jesus compares them to whitewashed tombs. You look great on the outside, But on the inside, you're dying, you're decaying, you're rotten. And so God keeps his gospel hidden from the Pharisees, these proud people. He keeps it obscure and incomprehensible so that they might humble themselves. And the tragic irony is that if the Pharisees truly lived up to this reputation of being wise and understanding, then they would have taken to heart Proverbs 3 verse 5. Trust in the Lord your God and lean not on your own understanding. Why is that? Because our own understanding so often misleads us. It so often leaves us prideful. And it determines our own path. It leads us further and further away from God. And so instead, Jesus says, the gospel is revealed to little children. In the Greek, this word is nepios, which can also mean infants or babies. And now parents, and I wanna say mothers especially, you all know how dependent a baby is. There is nothing that a baby can do on her own. There's also nothing a baby can do to earn your affection or earn your provision. And yet that baby is cared for because you love her. And what we see in this love of a parent for their baby is the kind of love that our God has for us. We are completely dependent, completely at his mercy, and yet completely loved by Him, only because we're His children. Considering this, perhaps it begins to make sense to us why the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these little children. The Pharisees' problem is pride. They refuse to approach God as children who are dependent upon their heavenly Father's mercy, and instead they want to endeavor to earn it on their own before God. God wants to give rest to His people but we must humble ourselves, acknowledge our need, and come before our Heavenly Father as children in order to receive it. The second thing required for us to receive Jesus' rest is divine revelation. If we want to know God's rest, then we must first know God, and God must reveal himself to us. All things, our Lord says in verse 27, have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Here we have this fantastic glimpse into the inner life of the Holy Trinity, this mutual love, this mutual self-knowledge, this mutual sharing for all of eternity this verse presents a challenge to us, and the challenge is this, that there is no saving knowledge of God outside of Jesus Christ. And what do I mean? I mean that there's a difference between knowing about God and knowing God as your personal Savior. Now consider this, I I know some people, and perhaps some of us even fit in this category, now the people I know might be wherever they're at with God, but they love reading and discussing comparative religion studies. And sometimes I get a question or two lobbed at me because they know I'm not really a spectator when it comes to religion, they know I actively play on Team Jesus. And so they'll lob questions at me like, you know, isn't it interesting that all major religions have these five things in common? Or isn't it interesting that all major world religions agree on these ten attributes of God? And it's as if to insinuate that Christianity really isn't so unique, and it really doesn't have a right to claim any kind of exclusive right to salvation or knowledge thereof. And what I usually say to people who who make these arguments is, you know what? That makes total sense to me. It makes total sense to me because, in fact, it confirms what Christians have believed and taught for centuries— that human beings are created in the image of God, and we're created with an unshakable sense of the divine, this unshakable sense that there's more out there. And I would argue perhaps even atheists are more attuned and acute to this than some of us, and I think our rectors of former atheists might agree with me on that. We can't shake that sense that there's something more out there. And so when we engage our rational faculties in order to articulate what we innately sense about God, It makes sense that different cultures would come to similar conclusions, some of which bear resemblance to the God we know in the Bible, much of which doesn't. But what what makes Christianity unique is Jesus Christ and his cross. What makes Christianity unique is Jesus Christ and his cross, the fullness of God revealed to us in his suffering love. The cross defies any kind of pure rationalism, because we would never expect the unmoved mover to become man, to die and to rise again, to reconcile us to God. The message says God, in Jesus Christ, moved into our neighborhood. He shares himself with us. This is the the beautiful and the unexpected absurdity of the gospel that St. Paul talks about in the first chapter of 1 Corinthians, when he says, the word of God is folly to those who are perishing, But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Martin Luther gleefully wrote about this when he says, Oh, what a ridiculous thing that the one true God, the high majesty, should be made man. Reason opposes this with all its might. But reason must bow and must confess her blindness. And that she wants to climb to heaven to fathom the divine while she cannot see what lies before her eyes. Now, neither St. Paul nor Luther are saying that we need to be irrationalists to be Christians, as if to have faith is to suspend all of our cognitive faculties, but we must bow our reason, our rationalism before our Lord Jesus, because only Jesus reveals to us the Father. We cannot, by our own endeavor, by our own initiative, grasp at God. We can only go to Jesus, to know who our Heavenly Father really is. So here's the challenge of verse 27. We can't get to God on our own by any human endeavor, by study, by discipline, by rationalism. To find God and to find his rest for our souls, we can only go to Jesus, who alone can share his Heavenly Father with us, who alone can reveal the Father to us. Receiving the Lord's rest requires humility. We need to come before our Lord as little children, dependent upon his good gifts to us. It also requires a revelation because God must reveal himself to us for us to know him and to know his rest. Now, the third thing we find is in the heart of Christ's invitation. Come to me, our Lord says in verse 28, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Do you feel burdened or heavy laden today? What's Jesus talking about when he says this? Well, let's consider his first audience. Jesus is, as one commentator puts it, speaking to men and to women as well, desperately trying to find God and desperately trying to be good, who are finding the tasks impossible and who are driven to weariness and despair. Why were they finding the task of being good, of earning it before God impossible? Well, in Matthew 23, Jesus says that the Pharisees tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Pharisaical law-keeping was a brutal and futile load to bear. To try and be good enough for God left the people exhausted and desperate. But the truth is, I don't think we've quite shaken this, this legalistic or pharisaical approach to religion quite yet. I see it popping up in my own life all the time as I try my best to earn it before God. And I think even in the walls of our churches, it creeps into our thinking, to our practice, to our habits. I was once, uh, I was recently speaking to a dear saint who was expressing to me just how spiritually exhausted she feels. She feels exhausted because she's trying her best to be a good Christian, to keep all the commandments of God, to do all the right things, to feel like she's the kind of person who's worthy of Christ and worthy of his salvation. But at the end of the day, she feels like she keeps falling short. At the end of the day, she feels like she can never quite be good enough to meet the mark, whatever that mark is. And the invitation that our Lord has for this, this dear saint is the invitation he shares with us as well. It's not an invitation to do, to try harder, to pick yourself up by your bootstraps. It's an invitation to come. It's an invitation to find rest. It's an invitation to find acceptance in the gospel of our Lord. The rest Jesus promises to us who are heavy laden is a rest from trying to be good enough, Jesus doesn't want you to be overburdened. Instead, surrender yourself to Jesus. Trust in his goodness and comfort and not your own, and you'll find rest for your soul. Surrender is what's necessary. It's what's required to find rest for our souls because we have to surrender ourselves wholeheartedly to our Lord who alone can give this rest to us. But This passage doesn't end there. There's an important exchange that happens next, and I want us to see it here. Our Lord says, take my yoke upon you. But what does it mean to take his yoke upon us? Well, there's two senses of the word yoke that Jesus' first audience would have understood. The first is the yoke of a livestock, and this is a kind of load-bearing wooden crossbeam that would have been fastened between uh, two animals, oxen or other cattle, and it would have allowed them to plow a field or to pull a cart. Now, this gets picked up and translated into a second sense, and that's of a rabbinical yoke. Over time, different interpretations of the Torah, the, the first five books of the Old Testament, emerged as each rabbi taught their disciples their personal perspective on how to live out the Torah. Their unique teaching became known as their yoke, and it would be passed along to their disciples. So in both senses, Jesus wants us to take his yoke upon us. He wants us to take upon us his teaching and his mission. This means that Jesus is in charge now. This means that he's the one who directs us. This means that he's the one who teaches us. This is why the clergy, we clergy, we wear these stoles. It symbolizes the yoke of Christ. And I know know mine kind of makes me look like I won Miss America or something. But it's meant to communicate to me and to the church that we're taking up the yoke of Christ. And, And even though clergy might be the one who wears stoles, we are all of us invited to take up this yoke of Christ. We are all of us invited to take up his mission to take his teaching, to take it upon us, to know that it's easy. This word easy in Greek can also be translated well-fitted or well-suited. It's a well-suited yoke to us. And it's well-suited because our own yoke, our own idea of what life is going to look like, isn't well-suited for us. Our Lord's is. And so we take up this yoke. Indeed, we take up our cross and we follow him, knowing that his cross alone is worth taking up. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. His burden is light. It's not meant to crush us. It's not meant to exploit us. It's not meant to oppress us. It's not meant to heap up all the dues and burdens of life. Instead, it's meant to keep us directed by him, that we may know the rest given to us in the gospel, that we may know the Father through our Lord, that as we surrender ourselves to him, we would come to find peace with God. You'll notice, of course, Jesus doesn't leave us burden free at the end of of verse 30. This should push back against any idea that becoming a Christian somehow makes your life magically easier or, you know, without kind of care, without any kind of challenge, that everything we do naturally prospers. No, we are left with burden, but we're left with the burden of Christ. And it's a good burden. It's his burden. It's his teaching. It's his mission. It's good. It's good for us. And we know his rest the more we surrender and we take up this good burden for us. St. Augustine, at the beginning of his confessions, writes of God, You made us for yourself, and our hearts find no rest until they rest in you. True rest is found nowhere else than in the assurance of the gospel that there is peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know the rest of our Lord today? You have peace with God, a peace which surpasses all understanding. Today, my prayer is that we would humble ourselves, that we would come before our Heavenly Father as his little children, dependent upon him, that we would accept the revelation of who God is in Jesus Christ, his love for us, and that we would surrender ourselves to him completely, putting him in charge, being his disciples, knowing that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. And even as we come to the table, may we once again -know know this rest of our Lord, know the rest of his gospel, find assurance of our salvation in his good gifts. Come, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.